The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On a chilly January evening in 2004, all that Donna and Dan Fryman built together came crashing down. Life as they knew it would never be the same. Join me now as we take a look into a case that will leave you wondering if people are truly the person they portray. You'll also learn how addiction, abuse, and infidelity can play a destructive role in the fabric of the strongest relationships. Donna and Dan met during study hall at Jefferson High School in Louisville, Kentucky, a city widely known for the Kentucky Derby. While dating throughout high school, the couple hung out every chance they got. Donna said they were more than a boyfriend and girlfriend. They were also best friends. Her dad treated Dan like a son, and all her extended family welcomed him with open arms. Donna's younger sister, Gail, was only four years old when she first met Dan, and she felt right away he was like a protective older brother. Helping her with homework, coached her softball team, and even vetted her boyfriends. In 1986, Dan and Donna got married when she was 19 years old. Gail fondly remembered being so excited to be their flower girl. In their wedding video, the couple looked so happy, laughing and feeding each other pieces of their wedding cake. Donna and Dan seemed inseparable, with Gail and her boyfriend Matt. When Gail and Matt decided to eventually tie the knot, Dan was the best man. They even went on their honeymoon with them. During Donna and Dan's first year of marriage, Donna worked as a secretary while Dan loaded trucks. Wanting more for themselves, the couple decided to move to a tiny apartment above Donna's parents' garage, hoping to save money and give them some time to figure out their future careers. Tapping into Donna's entrepreneurial spirit and Dan's love of art, the couple decided to start a small home business together. Dan designed clocks, while Donna sold them out of their garage. Amazingly, their little clock business did so well, they were eventually able to open up a boutique in 1986. They called their store a place of time, throwing themselves into designing, fixing, and selling clocks full time. Within a few months, the business was booming and money started pouring in. To celebrate their success, Donna and Dan decided to build a home to celebrate. They chose a lot in the Hillcrest subdivision in Prospect, a suburb of Louisville, and one of the wealthiest communities in Kentucky. The $550,000, 6,000-square-foot home had also given Dan another creative outlet to express his love for design. Dan chose all the finishes and color palettes. Dan wasn't afraid of taking risks. In fact, in one of the rooms, he painted a unique harlequin pattern on an 18-foot wall 
and for the finishing touch, added two Jester-style chairs. Their home was so beautiful, it was even featured in a 1998 home show that drew hundreds of visitors. The Fryman's house had become such a huge hit on the show that long lines of people waited over 30 minutes just to get a tour. As a savvy businesswoman, Donna saw the house's huge popularity as an opportunity to open up an interior design company. Louisville was clearly ready for their contemporary style. In August of 2001, the Frymans opened Pizzazz Interiors, a high-end furniture and design company showcasing dance talents. However, getting the business up and running wasn't cheap. In fact, the couple invested close to $1 million into the store. But the risk seemed to pay off. The 15,000-square-foot store had become so busy, Donna and Dan had to hire 10 staff members to help. By the time the Frymans were in their mid-thirties, they were enjoying a lavish lifestyle. Their driveway sported a Lexus and a Jaguar, while Dan matched a different Rolex watch with every occasion. However, their success came at a high personal cost. Donna and Dan decided not to have any kids so they could focus all their time on the design business. But within a year or so, Dan started to fall apart. The pressure of being creative for long periods of time, day in and day out, began to be too much to bear, and he started withdrawing from Donna and her family. He had also become dependent on drugs and alcohol. At the same time, his outward appearance also began to change. He got his ears pierced, began dyeing his hair unusual colors, and started wearing biker clothes. As Gail described it, there was a Danny and there was a Dan, like a split personality. Dan was the personality that seemed to take over when he was intoxicated or high. Donna said she barely recognized the man she loved, self-destructing before her eyes. As Dan stopped paying attention to his clients, Pizzazz Interiors also began to lose business. Donna wasn't shy about calling him out on his destructive behavior. She asked him what was going on. She told him he was acting strange. He wasn't doing his work and that his appearance was changing. But Dan didn't appreciate being questioned by his wife. Instead of answering her questions, he threw things and went ballistic. As their business began to collapse, their arguments increased in frequency and intensity. While helping out in the store one afternoon, Donna's sister Gail recalled Dan showing up and having one of his outbursts. As he stormed into the shop, he angrily accused Donna of taking his car. But Donna had no idea what he was talking about. She guessed he was just high and must have simply forgotten where he parked it. When Gail intervened and tried to calm him down, Dan became abusive towards her and started throwing things at her. Gail was positive Dan was going to hurt them. She suddenly remembered that Donna kept a gun by the cash register for protection, so she rushed over and grabbed it. When she aimed at him, he left. Thinking back, Gail wishes she called the police. She was scared for her sister's safety and couldn't help but wonder what Dan was like when nobody else was around. Donna finally hit her limit when she realized Dan was having an affair 
with an employee at their store named Kim. One evening, when Donna had stopped by the shop, she caught them making out on a desk. Donna was heartbroken and felt alone and betrayed. After standing beside him for so many years, she couldn't believe that that was how he chose to repay her. At first, Donna blamed his cheating on drugs and alcohol, but then thought to herself she was better than that and didn't need any of it. On March 2002, after 15 years of marriage, Donna left her beautiful home, moved back with her parents, and filed for divorce. But things were far from over. In a TV documentary called Hear No Evil, Donna recalled how Danny tried to win her back. Six months after she'd left Dan and their divorce was final, he showed up at her parents' house begging for forgiveness. He swore to Donna his affair with Kim was over and his heart belonged only to her. He seemed sober and clean, apologetic and loving, and Donna wanted her life back the way it used to be. She thought she could change him and decided to take him back. After Donna moved back in with Dan, she tried to rebuild their life together, but it was too late. Both Dan and their company were teetering on the brink of ruin. Although Dan tried really hard to stay sober for the first couple of weeks, his battle with addiction was taking over. From that point on, it seemed like Dan gave up. According to Donna, that's when his drug use began to escalate. When he moved from cocaine to heroin, his drug habit was costing them thousands of dollars a week. As Donna looked through their business finances, she realized in the six months she'd been gone, Dan had managed to lose everything they'd built over the past 20 years. By early January 2004, the Fryman home was in foreclosure and Pizzazz Interiors was bankrupt. What little was left of their relationship and business was crashing down around them. Although Donna and Dan's arguing turned much more violent, she hid how abusive he'd become. She was embarrassed she'd fallen for his lies and taken him back. According to Donna, he didn't even look like Dan anymore. His demeanor had changed and his eyes were lifeless. Chillingly, she was positive he was working up the nerve to kill her. But Donna didn't go to the police because she thought a restraining order wouldn't stop him from harming her. And she knew if she left him, he'd track her down and kill her. Donna explained there was no protection. There was no leaving. She knew the only way was going to end with one of them dead. On January 12th, 2004, Donna called her sister Gail at around 3 in the morning, saying she needed her husband Matt to come over right away. Dan was storming around the house waving a gun and yelling about how Gail and Matt owed him $2,000 with $800 in interest and he wanted it immediately. If they didn't get him the money within an hour, he said he'd go over to their place and kill them and their son. While Matt called for help, his sister stayed on the line with Donna. The 911 dispatch center in Louisville, Kentucky, logged a call for Matt at 3.25 a.m., reporting a domestic dispute at the Fryman residence. Matt said they better get there quick. Dan was on a drug-fueled rampage, and there were weapons in the house. 
Although police were immediately dispatched to help, somehow there was a miscommunication about the address. It took them nearly 25 minutes to arrive. During those long, intense minutes, the situation intensified. Over the phone, Gail could hear Donna and Dan screaming at each other. And then suddenly, she heard gunshots fired. Then, silence. Gail felt like she waited a lifetime to hear who would pick up the phone. It was Donna, and she told her sister she'd shot Dan. Gail immediately drove over to her sister's house and made it there before police. When she rushed into the house, she instinctively knew things were going to go in a bad direction. When police finally arrived at the Fryman's residence, they discovered Donna frantically pacing around the house, while Dan laid sprawled on the floor in the entrance, covered in blood and gasping for air. As neighbors congregated in the front yard, they saw Dan being taken away on a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance. At the same time, they also saw Donna being placed into the back of a police cruiser. She was being taken in for questioning. Although Donna admitted to shooting Dan three times, she insisted it was in self-defense. During their argument, she said Dan had pointed a 9mm gun at her, cocked it, and threatened to kill her. In Donna's mind, it was a kill or be killed situation. She had no choice but to pull the trigger. She'd hit Dan once in the hand and twice in the chest. When interviewed by Dateline, Donna said when she learned her husband died in surgery, she felt a wave of relief wash over her. She recognized it was a terrible way to feel, but she'd been living a nightmare and was grateful it had finally come to an end. Little did she know, her struggle to be free from Dan was far from over. An investigation into Dan's shooting soon began, and Donna's family hired a lawyer named Steve Romans to represent her. With her lawyer by her side, Donna made an official statement to investigators. She said she had nothing to hide and was looking forward to revealing how horrific life had been with Dan. Donna also told police Dan had become addicted to drugs and alcohol and had cheated on her. After she divorced him, he ended the affair and claimed to be a changed man. She'd mistakenly trusted him and gave him a second chance. However, instead of working to save their marriage and business, Dan fell into a downward spiral and was hell-bent on dragging Donna along with him. Since they'd gotten back together, he'd subjected her to abuse she characterized as pure torture. He'd slammed her up against walls, tossed her through the back of her Lexus window, raped her on several occasions, and once even flung knives at her. When asked why she never reported any of it, Donna confessed she was ashamed of being the victim of abuse. She was also so deeply afraid of Dan because she said he'd recently developed a terrifying split personality. When he started having seizures, she told him he needed to see a neurologist. Donna explained, while they were in the waiting room, a devil personality emerged from Dan and started growling and drooling. Thinking he was acting crazy because he just didn't want to be there, Donna told Dan if he didn't want to see the doctor, all he had to do was say so. 
There was no need for theatrics. What Dan said next made her shudder. He looked at Donna straight in the eye and said, It doesn't want to see a doctor. It doesn't want to be x-rayed because they'll be able to see I'm starting to change inside. Dan seemed convinced he was possessed by a demon and took off running from the office. The following day, Dan repeatedly phoned Donna's sister Gail day in and day out, saying a demon had taken over his body and was possessing him. As January 12th drew closer, Donna said the demonic side of Dan was often on the surface. When Dan got home on the evening of January 11th, Donna knew right away he'd been doing drugs by the crazed look in his eyes. After they went to bed, she said she was lying there trying to fall asleep when she heard him mumbling about how much he hated her and how she made him miserable. He wondered aloud why he'd even taken her back. Sick from his hurtful comments, Donna asked him what she'd ever done to him. According to Donna, that's when Dan grabbed his 9mm from the bedside table, bounced up on his knees, and stuck the gun in her face. She said she cried out, Oh my god, oh my god, what are you doing? Where's this coming from? That's when she said Dan leaned over, grabbed her face, and bit down hard on her cheek. He yelled, Get out of my effing face! Get out of this bed! Terrified, Donna replied, Okay, okay, don't touch me, don't hurt me, I'll leave. As she jumped out of bed, she grabbed a 38 pistol that she kept nearby and draped a red flannel shirt over her arm to hide the gun from her husband. But on her way out of the room, she said he ordered her to stop. That's when she said he forced her to call her sister Gail to ask her for the money he felt she owed him. Gail and Matt had an hour to pay up, or he'd head over to their place and kill them. At some point during the call, Donna said the shirt fell from her arm, revealing the gun she'd been concealing. That's when Dan walked over to her with a huge grin on his face, snatched the gun away from her, and shot it once into the floor, and a second time into the wall above the fireplace. He then put down both guns and then picked up the phone, demanding his money from Gail. Donna scrambled to get her gun and ran out of the bedroom, heading towards the back door. Dan then charged after her, catching up to her in the doorway of the dining room. Donna told investigators he then pointed the 9mm handgun at her and said, If you have the balls to pull a gun on me, you better have the balls to pull the trigger. Watching in horror as Dan's finger started to press down on the trigger, Donna said she raised her gun closed her eyes and fired. She told investigators she had solid proof she'd killed Dan in self-defense. When her husband's abuse had gotten out of control, she wrote it down in journals and made secret audio recordings of their arguments. Donna was sure Dan was going to kill her and she wanted authorities to know it was him who had done it. She also found writing in the journals therapeutic since she was keeping the abuse hidden from her friends and family. Donna kept the tapes and journals hidden in a box in the garage. On January 13th, Donna returned home with the investigators, her lawyer, and her sister Gail for moral support. After recovering the journals and tapes for police, 
Donna was asked to provide a videotaped walkthrough of exactly what had happened the night before. The camera captured the unbelievable destruction of the award-winning home. Holes were everywhere on the walls. Drawers were ripped apart and their contents dumped and thrown about. It was like a violent storm had passed through their once beautiful home. The events Donna told investigators happened next were basically the same she'd laid out back at the station. But police were starting to doubt her story. When Donna was done with her reenactment, she was brought back into the master bedroom. Investigators pointed to a third bullet hole they'd found above the headboard that Donna failed to mention in her account. She was confused, and she said she'd never seen it before. In their bedroom alone, there was at least eight bullet holes in the wall. She asked police how she was expected to have noticed one small additional hole in the room. When they listened to the collection of audio tapes, they were shocked to discover she had taped the 25 minutes from when she shot Dan to when the first responders arrived. On the recording, Donna could be heard telling her sister, I've shot the mother effer. He's getting ready to die. The tape also captured Dan pleading for help and Donna venting her anger. Dan begged, Donna, help me please. I love you. Call an ambulance. To which Donna replied, You don't love me. Don't tell me that. You're just saying it now. Why don't you call the whore and see if she'll take care of you? When Donna was asked why she taped Dan's final dying moments, she told police it was because at first she didn't realize she'd hit him. She said he didn't fall. He didn't do anything. He just disappeared. Police did find Dan's blood smeared throughout the house, supporting Donna's version of events that he'd wandered from room to room after he'd been shot. Donna said she'd run out of ammunition, so she grabbed the tape recorder she'd been using to record his abuse. She figured Dan's rampage would continue and wanted to record it on tape. By that point, investigators believed Donna hadn't killed Dan in self-defense. Dan's family said he never used drugs and implied Donna had been the abusive one in the relationship. According to them, Donna stole her husband's money and kept him hidden away from them. One of Dan's relatives told police, Donna was the most vindictive and manipulative woman you'd ever want to meet. Dan's parents, Jerry and Beth, denied their son was abusive. Jerry felt if Donna's tales of abuse were true, there was no way she would have gotten back together with him. He said, it just didn't add up. Investigators also didn't think the evidence corroborated Donna's account of events. There were no bullet holes in the dining room where she said she shot Dan, and police found no fingerprints or smudges on either gun they recovered from the scene. That meant there was no proof Dan had even held one of the guns that night. It also suggested Donna had wiped both guns clean so her fingerprints wouldn't be the only ones found on them. Investigators wondered how Donna had managed to shoot Dan three times in a tight pattern with a revolver and never miss once. According to her story, her eyes were squeezed shut in fear. They also learned from witnesses Donna had displayed repeated instances of anger towards Dan since she'd learned of his infidelity. 
She threatened to kill Dan on more than one occasion and more than once had pulled a gun on him and his lover, Kim. She apparently even tried to back over Dan with her car. Even more disturbing, police believe Donna had made the audio tapes and journals to build an alibi, which meant Dan's murder had been planned and was intentional. On March 2004, an Oldham County grand jury indicted Donna for capital murder, and she was facing life in prison. Donna was in jail for quite a while before her family could post bail. At first, they had to come up with $50,000 in cash and a $25,000 property bond, which was beyond their means. But after the trial was postponed a couple of times because the prosecutor was having cancer treatments, the judge was convinced to lower Donna's bail requirements to $15,000 cash and a $15,000 property bond. On February 21st, 2006, Donna's trial began, almost two years after her arrest. The small town courthouse was packed to the brim with media, spectators, and family members. During the emotional trial that spanned over three weeks, the defense and prosecution presented hundreds of pieces of evidence while calling dozens of witnesses. Oldham County Prosecutor Barry Moore argued Donna had shot her ex-husband in a jealous rage. Moore told the jury Donna Fryman could never get over the fact Dan left her for another woman and their business had collapsed. On the other side, Donna's attorney said his client had been abused for months before shooting her husband and her actions had been in self-defense. According to him, Donna had every reason to believe she was in mortal danger. Crime scene investigators told the court the bullet hole by the headboard seemed to suggest Dan was shot in the bedroom and not the living room as Donna had claimed. However, the defense countered the accusation by pointing out a number of other bullet holes throughout the house investigators never bothered to look at. Along with the forensic evidence and the crime scene investigator's testimony, the prosecution called Kim to the stand, the employee Dan was having the affair with. She testified, Donna and Dan's divorce was inevitable, with or without the affair. She testified that Donna had actually been the abuser in the relationship. She said Donna had subjected Dan to constant demeaning comments and physical attacks, claiming she'd even witnessed some of Donna's abuse firsthand. One day while she was out with Dan, she said Donna busted out his rear car window as he was trying to drive away from her. Kim also said Donna pulled out a gun and waved it around trying to scare her and Dan into stopping the affair. Under cross-examination, the defense got Kim to admit when she left Dan, she packed up and left fast because she'd been afraid of him too. That's when Kim confessed Dan was abusive and had assaulted her as well. Mirroring his treatment of Donna, Dan had warned Kim if she left him, he'd hurt her. He also threatened if he couldn't find her, he'd find her family and hurt them instead. The jury found forensic evidence and witness testimony important, but the real game-changer in the case was Donna's audio recordings. The prosecution played the tape Donna made of Dan's final moments after shooting him, allowing the jury to hear her taunting him as he lay dying. 
But when the defense wanted to play the tapes Donna had made, the prosecution argued they hadn't had a chance to authenticate them. During a long sidebar with the judge, Donna's lawyer argued the state had entered all the tapes into evidence, so all the tapes should be fair game. The judge ruled in the defense's favor and allowed all of the tapes to be played, which revealed the terror Donna had faced when Dan slipped into his demonic personality. The last tape the defense played in court ended with Dan telling Donna in what sounded like a possessed voice, you're so dead, you don't even understand. After the tape finished playing, Donna's defense lawyer looked at the jury and asked them, should Donna have been afraid? When the trial wrapped up and the judge sent the jury to deliberate, they were reminded they had four charges to consider. Murder, first-degree manslaughter, second-degree manslaughter, and reckless homicide. After deliberating for eight hours, the jury came back with a verdict. Not guilty. Donna's family and friends cheered with joy while Dan's parents left the courtroom, believing Donna had gotten away with murdering their son. Reporters commented how the case had become trial by audio tape, but it all boiled down to whose opinion of the tapes you believed. Donna said without the recordings, she would never be able to prove how deranged Dan had become or that she had no choice but to kill him. She believed the tapes saved her life because they convinced the jury she was in fear for her life. Donna told reporters the jury looked at the evidence saw the truth, and made the right decision. Justice was served. Dan was buried in Highlands Memorial Gardens under a grave marker that reads, Beloved Son. He's missed by his loved ones who believed he was taken from them far too soon. Donna moved in with her sister Gail while trying to recover from her trauma. She spent years trying to piece her life back together again. She said the loss of Dan follows her around constantly. They had built a great life together and she loved him deeply. But in her mind, his decision to use drugs and alcohol ruined their chance of living happily ever after. After the years of marriage and a business partnership, the decisions Dan made broke Donna's heart. Women like Donna are considered victims who fight back, but the battered wife defense they usually take is still often denied by the justice system. Donna's case is one of the rare exceptions where the jury eventually believed the defense. However, like many survivors of domestic violence, Donna was repeatedly asked why she just didn't leave Dan if she was being abused. But as more awareness is spread about domestic violence, more and more people are beginning to realize it's not always that simple. There can be many barriers that stop someone from leaving an abuser, including threats, coercive control, children, shared finances, and fear. After getting out of her relationship alive, 
Donna said she wants to help other survivors of domestic violence and teach people that abuse can happen to anyone. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally... The closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not